Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm glad that you have made a point of tuning into the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on this Tuesday evening. I'm Nathan Owens, sitting behind the desk of the broadcast studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who may be listening to the program. And this is a live interactive program. It's 90 minutes long, so stay tuned. Uh, as much as you can, go ahead and rearrange your schedule or keep the radio on while you're doing your evening activities. And go ahead and encourage others to tune in to That's Truth also. Maybe they're not even in this hemisphere. Maybe they're on another continent. They can listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org. However you choose to participate, thank you in advance for participating in tonight's episode. Pastor, we have several questions that have come in already since last week's episode. So we're going to start out with some questions from St. Kitts. Good night, Pastor Murphy. What is meant by the fellowship of his sufferings in the Bible? Well, first of all, the reference is really taken from Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, uh, where the Apostle Paul uh, talks about that he may know him. And he talks about the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I think the best way to understand what it means is perhaps define the words that are used in the text. And the word fellowship uh, comes from the Greek word koinoia, uh, which means to share something in common or to participate. And of course, suffering is the Greek word Pafeme, which has to do with hardship or affliction or pain. So what the Apostle Paul is, is saying really that he wants to be, participate in the kind of sufferings that Christ endured so that he can fully identify in him, with him uh, in his death and his resurrection and also in his sufferings. Um, I don't I think I, I don't have to remind the uh, the writer or the person who sent it in that you know sufferings for the believer is part and parcel of identifying with Christ. Um, the Bible says, He that lived godly will suffer persecution. And in Acts chapter 9, 16, when the Apostle Paul was called to the ministry, uh, the Lord told him in that call that he would suffer many things for the kingdom of God's sake. So the Apostle Paul really uh, don't, don't want to reign with Christ. He wants to suffer with Christ. He's not just concerned about the crown of glory, but he, like Christ, would like a crown of thorns. And he just not want to wear the robe of splendor, but he want to also wear the scarlet robe of reproach and contempt and disdain. So it's just Paul um, in, in, in really to sympathize more with the cause of Christ and what Christ did for us. Uh, he wants to uh, face sufferings that would cause him to appreciate the depth of the sufferings of Christ on his behalf. 
So it's really identifying with Christ and suffering in the cause of Christ. That's what it really means. So, Pastor, if I'm a born-again believer and I'm listening to your answer there, but I can't point to any specific sufferings that I'm suffering in my life as a result of being a Christian, should that be cause for me to question my salvation? Well, I would say this, you know, we don't court suffering, and we shouldn't go after suffering. But I think any person that is a Christian, uh, at some point in in time, you will suffer some reproach. Um, I remember when I was in school, uh, as a secondary school, I, I remember I got a lot of flack. I was called little Jesus. I was I was mocked. I was told that all this religion I got when I did my exams, um, I would come out as a failure uh, because I normally would eat my lunch quickly at uh, noon, and then I had a Bible uh, Bible club in, in our school, and I would teach Bible lessons, and that offended people greatly. Now, that was a, a means of suffering, to be very honest with you. So I, I, I think that um, if a true person really uh, lives like a Christian, acts like a Christian, think like a Christian, and perhaps respond like a Christian, I think it's almost inevitable that you'll meet some kind of persecution. Even in your workplace, taking a stand against something that is wrong, maybe wasting time, uh, maybe uh, going into the bathroom and spending two hours instead of doing the people's work, uh, maybe uh, taking up the pens or the the, the stationery, maybe the negative talk that they have against the manager, uh, and you begin to take a stand and say, well, if you've got a problem, talk to him. Um, You'll find that people think that because you're different and you're trying to espouse Christian principles, they normally will say things that are very demeaning of you and try to belittle you and almost try to um, force you into conforming to the norms of the of the office, uh, which not a lot of times is just gossip and misbehavior. But you will suffer um, persecution, and I think if you don't suffer it now, uh, it's coming. Uh, it's almost inevitable. As Paul says, he that lived godly will suffer persecution. And I think that that will be the discovery of most people who are believers, that if they truly live as a Christian should and respond as Christians should, I think they'll discover that this persecution it may not come in physical persecution, but it could be verbal, it could be emotional, but it will be there. So it's inevitable, basically. Another question from the listener in St. Kitts. Pastor, what were the Dark Ages? Well, the Dark Ages uh, normally refers to a Western European historical period uh, between the 6th century and the 14th century. Um, It is sometimes called the Middle Ages, and some people date it from 600 to about 1570. That's when Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses and and pinned it to the church in Wittenberg. Um, There are two things about the Dark Ages that people should be aware of. Uh, uh, First of all, it covers a historical period that is normally uh, considered to be intellectually a time of darkness uh, intellectually because it ended with the, what is called the Renaissance. The Renaissance was a renewal of knowledge in, in Europe, and it went back to the classical Greek and uh, classical Roman times. Um, so it was really getting back into the real study of of, of the, the ancient uh, classical works. This led to a renaissance in, in, in Florence, Italy. And um, you'll find people like Plutarch, um, um, Dante, and it was uh, Plutarch, Dante, and Boccaccio. These are people who led uh, to this revival of knowledge in the Renaissance. Later on, you, you hear such names as uh, Michelangelo, Raphael, and um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. All of these were part of this Renaissance, and it resulted in um, great European literature, art, and architecture. So that is the historical part of it. 
But there's another part to the Dark Ages called the theological part, which has to do with that during this period of time, for almost a thousand years to 1,500 years, the Roman Catholic Church dominated the landscape religiously and ushered in a period of darkness uh, because it, it it hid the truth from people. And also, uh, the Bible had to be taught in Latin, even though you couldn't understand Latin and you couldn't speak Latin. Everything was done in, in Latin. And it was during this period of time that um, the truth about the gospel was lost and the Catholic Church um, emphasized a salvation by works. They still do that today. They would not accept the fact that salvation by faith and faith alone, which is called the doctrine of justification by faith alone, uh, they said it was faith plus works. And this is one of the great um, matters was dealt with during the Reformation period. It's also during this period of the Dark Ages that the Catholic Church introduced ten uh, doctrines, false doctrines, into the Church. Um, not only was it the salvation of works introduced, but baptismal regeneration, that when a person is baptized, especially a baby, his original sins are washed away. And then also the worship of images. You venerate images, you bow to images, etc., etc. And then the matter of uh, celibacy, that the clergy could not be married. And of course, I don't have to tell you what it's done to the Catholic Church today. I think the the uh, the, the, the church in um, the Catholic Church in New York just declared bankruptcy because there was so much money they had to pay out because all of this buggery and... Um, and uh, sexual abuse of uh, the uh, uh, communicants. Uh, but that came about as a result of the introduction of celibacy so that the clergy could not marry. And then they, they, they introduced what's called auricular confession, that you had to confess to a priest your sins. Uh, and of course, the Bible makes it quite clear that we confess our sins to God, and if we offend a person, we go to that person offend the person. And it also makes it very clear that we are priests before God. We don't need another intermediary because we are priests unto our God. And then the doctrine of purgatory, where unfaithful Christians who die with unconfessing go to be purified. And of course, uh, they introduced along with that indulgence, where you can pay your way out of in, out of purgatory by paying the Catholic Church and buying indulgences. And then the seventh thing they did was was called transubstantiation, which meant that the communion was no longer a ordinance; it was a sacrament. And when you partake of the bread, you're not partaking of bread. It's actually transformed into the body of Christ. And when you partake of the grape juice, it's the blood of Christ. Uh, the priest is given the power to transform these elements. So that also was introduced. And every time the priest offered an offering, uh, a, a sacrament, he's making a sacrifice. Now, of course, the Bible says Christ died once and for all time, so there's no need to make a sacrifice. And then the other uh, error they introduced was penance. This had to do with afflicting the body in order to pay for your sins. So the, you have to do something that really um, um, affects your, your body. And then the last thing, of course, which is perhaps the worst thing, they introduced Mariolatry. And by that, they made Mary virtually a, a goddess. She's now the queen in heaven. They made her the um, the mother of God. Mary is not the mother of God. Mary is the mother of, of, of Christ's humanity. So she cannot be the, the mother of God. And in addition, she's now the co-redemptrix. Uh, she, along with her son, uh, is necessary in order for us to have redemption. And then, of course, she's co-mediatrix. Uh, she is a mediator with God. We, we go to Mary, who goes to Christ, who goes to God. They put a fourth layer in there as part of the, the belief system. It was these ten doctrinal errors 
that were uh, introduced into the church during the Dark Ages. And substantially, that's why church historians call it the Dark Ages, a time of darkness when the truth of God was lost. And then we came with the Reformation when Martin Luther, John Calvin, and um, uh, Zwingli and uh, others uh, brought back the torchlight of the Word and was able to dispel all of this darkness. So that's what the Dark Ages is. It's a historical period between the 6th century and the 14th century, but it also is a theological period of darkness where the Church, Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, dominated the landscape and uh, as a result introduced a lot of false doctrines, and especially the doctrine that was um, thought that was perhaps more damning was that people are saved by faith plus works. Uh, Luther changed that to point out they were saved by faith, and faith alone works are a byproduct of conversion and not part of being saved. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program. And we appreciate the listener from St. Kitts who sent in that question. The voice that you heard teaching was that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. Time is 7.44 on this Tuesday evening. Now, Pastor, you mentioned that in previous episodes, you've mentioned that there's always been a remnant of true believers. During the Dark Ages, even though the Catholic Church introduced a lot of false doctrine, were there still true believers? Oh, yeah. There's a book um, writ called The Pilgrim Church. Uh, I'm trying to remember the, the author at this point in time. It doesn't come immediately. That is one of the most fascinating books you can read. It, it discusses all the all this kind of matter that while all of this during this dark age period there were always remnant groups like the Qatari, uh, the Albigenses and also the Waldenses. There were always groups that God had always uh, kept back and always remained true um, to the faith. And uh, so this is something that God has always done in every period of human history. There has never been a period when the light has totally gone out. God has always kept the light shining. And uh, so even though you had this this darkness, you still had these remnant groups who were actually challenging the Catholic Church. Uh, the Anabaptists is another one that should be mentioned. This is where the Baptists came from. And of course, they insisted that people be rebaptized who were not truly converted. Uh, they said that you know the fact that you were baptized as an infant doesn't mean that's genuine uh, Christian baptism because in order to be baptized you got to believe. How can a child believe? How can a baby believe? That led to the uh, Anabaptists being slaughtered, uh, burned at the stake, sometimes impaled, um, going through the Inquisition. So at every period of human history, uh, God has always safeguarded a remnant. And during the Dark Ages, there were remnants as well. The next question, what is meant by orthodox or orthodoxy? Well, it depends on what the person is thinking about. Uh, if he's thinking about the word orthodoxy in the sense of the orthodox church, there is an orthodox church, the Eastern Church, uh, which was, um, first of all, it is a break away from the Catholic Church. Uh, in 1054, the um, there was a schism between the church in the West, led by the Pope, and the church in the East, led by the Emperor. And that created what is called the Eastern Orthodox Church. The division uh, came about for political reasons. Uh, the West, when the, the Roman Empire um, declined in 395, uh, what happened there is that the, the emperor um, 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 made Constantinople, the, moved the, the, the location from the West into the East, 
and also two heads of of, of church. So you had like a pope in the west and a pope in the east. And uh, the pope in the west, when the Roman Empire collapsed, the pope not only had um, religious powers, he now had temporal powers. He was the most powerful man in Europe at the time. He made kings bow before him, even in the in the in the snow. Kings would have until unless he removed the excommunication. But in the in the east. The emperor was the one in charge of the church, so it was a rivalry between the Western Catholic Church and really the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, this went on for a while, and then there were other issues that eventually led to the schism between the two of them, that is the breakup of the two of them. Um, they had problems with celibacy. The Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church in Rome, insisted that the clergy could not be married. In the Eastern Church, they said that the clergy could be married, but the bishop could not be married. So they, they practice uh, marriage in the Eastern Church, but not in the Western Church. The other thing is that, uh, a simple question, wearing beards. You, you notice that the Eastern people always wear beards. In the, in the West, they didn't want to wear beards, so that created some problems with them. And then there was language. There was Latin in the West, and there was Greek. Uh, you had the Greek Orthodox Church, Greek in the East. And then there was dispute about the Holy Spirit. Uh, whether the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son or from the Son alone. The West said the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Son. The East said it proceeded from the Father and the Son. That became a theological debate that caused them really to, to, to split. And then the question when to celebrate Easter. Two different dates were yeah. set in, in that particular time. And then the other thing is uh, the appointment of a, uh, the Patriarch of the Church of the East. Uh, who appoints that? The emperor did, or uh, or did a pope, etc. And then finally, there was a controversy uh, in the between the matter of the West using unleavened bread in the communion service, and the East said that is heretical. That was the final straw that broke the back between these two groups, and so you've got the Eastern Orthodox Church when these two churches uh, s- split. Now, there's another term that uh, the way this word orthodox is used, when we use the word orthodox, because the word orthodox really comes from uh, the Greek word orthos, which means straight or right. And uh, is also applied to to Christians, uh, not the Eastern Orthodox Church. So when a believer is orthodox, it simply means that he holds to what the Bible teaches in relation to all the major doctrines of the Scripture. He believes in creation, he believes in the Trinity, he believes in the fall, he believes in the virgin birth, he believes in the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, he believes in salvation through faith alone, he believes in final judgment, he believes in hell, he believes in other, he holds to what's called the apostolic creed, the Apostles' Creed. Would that be synonymous with fundamental? Well, fundamentalist is... Uh, an orthodox person, um, a fundamentalist may be an orthodox, but an orthodox person may not be a fundamentalist because okay. a fundamentalist is, is taking a militant stand. It's not just that I believe these doctrines, but I'm willing to fight for them. That's the difference between a fundamentalist and an orthodox person. Okay. Orthodox said, you know, I believe these things, but it's no use fretting over these things. A fundamentalist said, I'm going to defend the truth and I'm going to uh, fight for the truth. So there's a, a militant aspect to this match. When you add militancy to orthodoxy, you have a fundamentalist. He's not just a passive person that allows error. He fights against error. And so he is like a Protestant when a Protestant used to protest. Now there's no protesting of Protestants. Yeah. But that's the, the, the so an orthodox person Bailey is a person who is um, who is hold to biblical truth. Now that word orthodox is used in contrast like the neo-orthodoxy 
which says that the Bible contains the Word of God. It's not the Word of God, but it contains. So not everything in the Bible is the Word of God. And then you've heard of liberalism and modernism that attack the Scriptures and, and uh, destroy the Scriptures. And then, of course, there are neo-evangelicalism as well, where they don't take a very firm stand on, on Scripture. So that is substantially the difference there between, uh, that's what the word orthodox means. You either use it in the sense of referring to the Eastern Orthodox Church, or it refers to a believer who takes a firm stand on biblical truth and all the major doctrines of the Bible he accepts. Pastor, can you please explain the following phrase? There is more to that than the eye meet. There is more to that than that which meets the eye. Well, generally speaking, it means that there is more to a matter uh, than the eye actually can see. In other words, matters are far more complex by just than looking at the sur- surface uh, understanding of them. There, there may be deep, deeper meaning than what you actually see. So you can't always trust your eyes. Your eyes can be deceptive. You might need to do some investigation. Uh, and that's the whole thing, that people and problems are far more complex than they seem. Uh, and the eyes sometimes can deceive you. So they need to, to find, dig deeper um, than just looking at on the surface of what a, a matter is. Uh, that's basically what it means. So you can't really uh, fully judge a matter purely by um, your sight, what you see, what you think you see. There may be hidden causes and hidden uh, roots of the problem below the surface that you can't see. So it needs more than just your eyesight to really come to a conclusion. That's basically what it means. Here's another question from a listener, a very practical question or interesting question. Is the sinner or unbeliever of any use to God? Well, let me just begin by saying that God values all human beings because all human beings are made in the image of God. So whether a person is a Christian or a non-Christian, that person has value before God because he is made in God's image. The Bible also tells us God loves the world. That means he loves all of humanity. That means um, it's a very broad statement that expresses the, the, uh, the love of God for people. And also Peter tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. So God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Um, So the value of a sinner rests on three things to God. Let me just mention, number one, uh, the sinner or the unbeliever is a potential redeemed uh, child of God. So in that sense, he has potential value. Um, Just like Paul, who was a persecutor of the Christian, uh, was converted and became Paul the evangelist, Paul the missionary. Uh, Paul was potentially uh, a, a person that could be used of God, but when he got converted, then God was able to use him. Number two, even though a person is in their unsaved state, uh, God can still use that person to fulfill his purpose. Take Cyrus, the great king of uh, Persia. Uh, the Lord called him a hundred years before he was actually born. Uh, to become the instrument that would make a decree to send his people back home from the, the captivity. But Cyrus was not a, a, a believer. He was, not an, he, was, he was a pagan. But yet he's called Cyrus my servant. So God can and then take Nebuchadnezzar, who was used to chasten Israel and actually led Israel into captivity. Uh, and again, uh, you'll find out in the book of Daniel that after Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, uh, he praised the God of heaven and that knowledge that he's the one that puts up and he that pulls down. So God can use the unsaved person, even though that person is not redeemed, to fulfill uh, his purpose. And then the other thing I think is this, that 
Uh, a sinner and uh, unbeliever is valuable to God in the sense that when that person uh, sometimes gets converted, the transformation is so radical that people are left to do nothing but glorify God for the change that is brought about in that person's life. So I think in that sense, uh, the sinner and the unbeliever has value to God. Now, you mentioned Nebuchadnezzar and uh, other illustrations in the Old Testament, but that's back in Bible time. Do you really believe that God uses unsaved politicians today to work out his will? I can shock the audience right now. I believe that's what he's doing with Donald Trump. I sincerely believe that with all my heart. Uh, Had Donald Trump not been elected, the religious freedom in America would have been gone. Uh, Christian uh, business people would have lost their, they either compromise and uh, buy contraceptives and abortion pills for your employees or close down your business or be taken to jail or pay huge funds and then break your business up. Trump changed all of that. There's no question about that. So I do feel that, uh, in a sense, uh, God, and, and that's the thing that marvels people, by the way, is nobody expected Donald Trump to win, not even myself expected him to win. Uh, but he has done some things that it's very, very clear that had he not been elected, I'm not too sure where American Christians would be today. And uh, so it, it is not the man, uh, his mannerisms, or maybe his personality, uh, just like Cyrus was used by God and Nebuchadnezzar was used by God. I have no doubt in my mind uh, that he was used to put back, push back the tide to give America a reprieve, especially Christians a time to, to, to be able to um, uh, at least fight for their rights and try to get laws changed that would have undermined. Uh, and not only that, remember in the last previous administration, uh, there was a threat of pastors couldn't even talk about politics in the pulpit. They had to present their sermons to the, I forgot which uh, government department, uh, There was uh, something was done in that way, they were, that almost it was becoming threatening that you had to, otherwise you lose your tax exemption. All of this uh, was going to happen, and then miraculously he was elected and all of that changed. So I do think that even today uh, he uses people, and I think he's using Trump. Do you think that's even broader than just politics, even just like uh, who's leading an organization, whether it be uh, Facebook or other large organizations? Uh, Look, I also uh, think that um, that is possible that there are other, for example, there are honest scientists today who have left the doctrine of false doctrine of evolution and have come out and said the evidence is against evolution, and they're not Christians. They're honest enough to say that when we see the amount of information, for example, in the DNA, I mean, enough information to fill the whole uh, volumes of inc- encyc- uh, Britannic Encyclopedia, they've come to the count, this is not random knowledge, this is sequential knowledge. Somebody had to uh, put it in the order in which it is in, and they've come up quite frankly say, we don't, we don't believe in a God, uh, in the God of the Bible, but there had to be some intelligence somewhere uh, I think that uh, those people uh, stir other people who are perhaps um, not bold enough to come out and say that evolution is a hoax. But I think that even those people, they're unsafe people, but I think that those vociferous people who make those kind of statements openly, I think uh, indirectly God is using them to bring people back to faith uh, in Christ. Do you have a question? We would love for you to ask it. You can call and be put live on the air by calling one 268 462-7420. The phone line is open and waiting for you. Again, the phone line to be put live on the air is one 
462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to the following phone number, one 268 782 1454. WhatsApp or text 268 782 1454. Thank you for listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on this Tuesday evening. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. For this program, every Tuesday evening, we are also live on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed. You can see what's behind the scenes, and you can also comment your questions under the video feed. Pastor Murphy, another question from a listener. What is angel food? And they reference Psalm 78 and verse 25. And let me turn to that. Uh, Psalm 78 and verse 25. Thank you. As I'm turning there, thank you to the individuals who have sent in questions so far this evening. Psalm 78, 25. Man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. Can you read also verse 25? Yeah. Sorry, that was verse 25. Verse 24, uh, starting in verse 24, and had rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them of the corn of heaven and man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. Well, it's very clear if you look at the passage that what um, the writer is referring to is that the fact that it's referring to manna as angels' food? That is that is what it's referring to. Um, the I, the thing that you got to understand about um, Hebrew poetry, and remember that the Psalms are in the form of Hebrew poetry, is that they employ uh, a special device, a poetic device called parallelism. Uh, where the the sentences, the couplets are in parallel. Now Hebrew poetry did not did not re, uh, depend upon rhyme. We do a lot of depend on rhyme in English poetry. It depends upon rhythm and on the and the uh, this matter of parallelism. Here you have in the passage. What, well, let me explain what parallelism is. There are different types of uh, Hebrew parallelism. Uh, for example, there's something called synonymous parallelism. This is where the first part of the verse. And the second part of the verse substantially say the same thing. Um, an example of that would be uh, Job thirty-eight seven. Then there's something called antithetical parallelism, where the second uh, sentence or the second part of the couplet says the very opposite of what the first line says. And then there's something called synthetic parallelism, where the first line and the second line uh, adds and progresses from the uh, from the first point. And then there's something called climatic parallelism where the second line completes what was begun in the first line, and then there's something called iterative uh, parallelism, which is basically uh, repeating praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, but something else is added at the end that enhances uh, who is praised. And then there's something called responsive uh, parallelism. This is where, like, you... Uh, what we call antitonal, like in the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church, the person reads something and then the person responds. What we have here in uh, Psalm... Uh, 87 is what you call synthetic um, parallelism and synonymous parallelism. In other words, 
the bread of heaven and the corn of heaven and the manna are all the same. It's just using different terminology for effect. Uh, so that now the reason why it might be called the um, bread of heaven or angels' food, should I say, um, is because it uh, it's probably that it was um, administered to by angels that the Lord had sent it down, used the angelic ministry to do that. Uh, the other thing is that uh, it can also refer to uh, angels' food in the sense that it's referring to the excellency of what was provided, that it was food fit for angels if angels could eat. Uh, the reason why I say that, this is an expression you find in the Bible. For example, when Paul is talking about speaking, he said, though I speak with the, uh, the tongues of angels, that's the, that's the highest, uh, in other words, a term that speaks of the superlativeness of, of that kind of speech. And then, uh, Peter, you remember the case of uh, Stephen? When Stephen was, st- was stoned, it said that his face looked like an angel. In other words, it speaks of his magnificence. Magnific- so that expression is an idiomatic Hebrew expression that speaks about the excellency of something. And then the third thing, a reason why it could have been called that term, is because the word that is translated here, angel, if you check the uh, Strong's Concordance or any other lexicon, you'll find that it actually uh, is translated the food of the mighty. It's not angel. The word is not mighty. It's angel. And that word that is used here for mighty is the Hebrew word abir. And that word is used in the Bible uh, to speak of nobles and speak of princes. For example, in Psalm 68.31, it's, it refers to princes. If you check there for just a moment, Psalm 68.31. It says, Princes shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands. See that word God. princes? It's yeah. the same word translated angel there in that same passage. And then if you look at Job 24.22, uh, it's referred to nobles. Job 24.22 says, He draweth also the mighty with his power, he riseth up, and no man is sure of life. Now in that particular passage, it's referring to the nobles, if you read the whole context of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what it's really saying is that, uh, using that expression, it could mean that he gave them uh, food suitable for princes and nobles. In other words, like we would say the rich and the famous, yeah. he gave them the best that he, he could. That's how the expression is used. But let's not miss something here. Uh, Paul refers to this manna. Uh, that was given to Israel, uh, he refers to it as spiritual food in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4. Could you read that? 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says, And did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, in that case, notice that he's referring, he's, he's, he's using the example from Israel's wilderness experience and he's saying that they partake of that meat and they partake of that drink uh, he call it spiritual food and then he points out that the drink was Christ but don't forget in John chapter 6 Christ said I am the manna that came down from heaven which a man shall eat and not die I am the living manna so let's not get wrapped up in the terminology of um uh, what we call here the the angel's food. Let us understand that the whole purpose of that manna being given in the wilderness, it was a type of Christ who would come, who would become the living bread, 
that those who put their faith and trust in Him will not only live um, in dependence upon Him, but will never die. So the manner um, uh, really is, 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 is Christ. And just like the manner came down from heaven, uh, Christ was the one that would come down from heaven to bring eternal life to others. So that's what it really means. It's a, it's a term, depending on how you look at it. Uh, it could refer to the excellence of what God has provided. It could refer to the fact that it's angels food, the fact that God used angels to minister and bring it down to, to, to them. Or uh, it could mean, as is used in other places, as the, the best is food suited for nobles and, and for kings and for princes. Uh, God gave them their best. That's the whole point of the passage. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is seven and a half minutes after 8 p.m. We're glad that you're listening to That's Truth. And if you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to 268 782-1454. Pastor, we have a caller. Thank you very much for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening. Hi, good evening, sir. How are you tonight? Yes, how can I help you tonight, sir? Uh, I would like to ask you a question about John the Baptist when he was in prison. Uh-huh. When he sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the Messiah. Uh-huh. Or should they look for next one? Uh-huh. Did they have doubts? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you want you know, to turn off and li- listen online, or are you going to listen? Yeah, we listen. Oh, well, it's clear that John went to a time of faith eclipse. Remember, John had said that he, he would come and he would... Um, every branch that is not... He would cut the branch and he would burn the branch. John pronounced judgment because... Uh, John really thought that Christ was coming to set up his kingdom. Be, uh, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, John in himself did not fully understand the total ministry of Christ. He would come first as a savior, then he would return as a king. So he went to a, a, a time, and, and you can imagine that um, you're preaching that the king has come, and then you are his messenger, and suddenly you find yourself in prison. And why are you in prison? Because you're a righteous man who condemned the king for adultery with his own um, brother's wife. And uh, so now your head is on the block, and you are, you're, 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 your life is on the, on the line because you've actually preached righteousness. Why doesn't the Messiah do something? And so he's having a moment of doubt. Is this the one? Uh, and, you know, but that shows you the humanity of John, that people can have doubts. Abraham, for example, uh, you know he lied. He didn't have the faith to believe the Lord could protect him. He went down into Egypt. Uh, we look at the character of Jacob, the massive mistake Jacob made. Uh, David, I don't want to tell you about the adultery of David. There, there are times when people can go to periods of doubt because we look at look at Elijah. Uh, when Jezebel said, I'll have your head off, and he ran away and said, God, take my life. You know, I'm the one left. Uh, you know, So it's a time of doubt that he went through, an eclipse of faith uh, that he went through. And then when the Lord uh, responded to him, go tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, uh, the poor have the gospel. You know why he told him that? Because mm-hmm. in Isaiah chapter 11, when the Messiah comes, that's exactly what the Messiah would do. He would heal the sick, he would heal the blind, he'll raise the dead. So he's reminding John, taking John back to Scripture, 
to renew his faith, he has to go back to Scripture and see the Messiah has come. Messiah is fulfilling all that the, 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 old, the prophet said. And that's how John was able to rebuild his faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When we go through times of doubt, the way to bring ourselves out of that doubt is to go back to the Scripture, which is the living Word of God, feed on it, and it will generate faith in us because it's the active Word of God that is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay. Uh, one more question. Sure. Uh, we've Esau and Jacob. Uh-huh. Uh, when the Bible talks about Esau finding no place in things had to repent, what, what, what does that really mean? Is that he's losing salvation or... Well, no, you've got to look at it in terms, I mean, a lot of people, you've got to look at it in terms of what we're talking about here. In that particular passage uh, between Jacob and Esau, uh, it has to do with the birthright. And the birthright meant that you could, um, you would have a double inheritance. And it also meant that the blessings of the Messiah would come through your line. We know that from the account that is given to us, where Esau comes in from hunting, he's hungry, and he says to Jacob, you know, if I don't get this soup, I'm going to die. You know, that, that's, that's folly, total folly. But the Bible, that's what the Bible says, Esau despised his birthright. He treated it very lightly and with contempt. And then, uh, even though he was sorry afterwards, he didn't, God didn't give him room to uh, once again uh, reverse what he had done. He had made a decision, a rash decision, an emotional decision, an emission, a decision based purely on the flesh. His desire to, to meet the needs of the flesh. And that meant that he forfeited the blessings that he had. That's what it means. It has nothing to do with the salvation there. It has to do with the fact that uh, he would not be the one through whom the Messiah would come. Uh, and he would not inherit a double blessing. But uh, it has nothing to do with his eternal destiny in that passage. It has to really do with it, the line through which the Messiah would come and the double blessing. So, so but, uh, let me tell you, uh, if, if the blessing was for Esau, Mm-hmm. And then Esau, you know, Jacob would have him and do what he do to get it. But we know the uh, blessing, but, but, but wait a minute, sir, let me just, we know the blessing was not for Esau. Even when they were in the wound, uh, she was told that the younger, the older would serve the younger. It was God's plan. The problem, the problem with Jacob is that Jacob was impatient. That's the problem. It was deception that really God blamed, but the, the blessing was coming to Jacob whether or not he had gone about the way he did it. Uh, he had just to wait on God, but he went about the wrong way. But the, oh. from the very beginning, read the passage clearly, when they were in the wound, uh, the mother was told that the, the, the older would serve the younger. The blessing is coming through the younger, the second son. But being the firstborn son, normally, according to the standard customary t- um, tradition of the times, it was the firstborn that would inherit the double blessing. The question is, what would God have done that Jacob would have gotten the blessing uh, without having to go through this method of deception. And God could have done several things. Uh, you remember that uh, Simeon and Levi was disinherited because they went in and killed um, when the daughter, sister was, Dinah was um, uh, raped. Uh, yeah. Rather than take vengeance on the guy who was raped, they went and uh, got everybody circumcised. And when they were sore, went in and slaughtered the whole. And then, you remember what happened? You remember what happened yeah. in that case? Yeah, they yeah. were disinherited uh, yeah. so that the Messiah now came to Judah. See? Reuben disinherited himself because he went to his father's concubine. And then Simeon and Levi committed such atrocities that now Judah became the one to who the Messiah would come. So God could have done many, many things. He could have, Esau could have died early. 
and the blessings come to, to Jacob. So the, the issue there was that Jacob was impatient and he tried to make things happen his own way, like we do sometimes, as you know, rather than trust God and believe that God can do something for us. But it's the deception that was there. But uh, from the very inception and the very birth of the two boys, it was God's design that the blessing would come true to, to Jacob and the, the, the uh, et cetera. But uh, it's the deception, how they went about it. Yes, and we've got to be very careful that we don't let the flesh get the best of us. We've got to trust the Lord so that, um, trust Him to do what He wants to do and we, we know He can do for us and not let the flesh get in the way so that we engineer what we want done and then later on we regret it. God bless you. Thank you very much for the call and have a good night. Phone line is now available, so if you have a phone, a question you'd like to call and ask live on the air, you can call one two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. Now, Pastor, right before that question, you were talking about Psalm seventy eight twenty five and specifically angel food. That same uh, question also is asked of Psalm seventy eight twenty four, where he talks about the corn of heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, what is meant by that? Well, again, it's referring to the same thing, the manna. Okay. But uh, just it's called angel food. It's called corn, uh, corn from heaven. Again, uh, there's something called in the uh, poetry metonymy, where a word that is associated with something uh, is used in that way. Like we talk about um, um, bread representing food because it's like a staple and of course, in the, in the Old Testament days, corn was a staple food. So just like the manna came down, uh, it's now using the, the word manna, is now like corn from heaven. It's a staple food that is going to be with Israel. Remember that that was fed to Israel for 40 years during the wilderness journey. So it came down from heaven. And uh, the other thing about it is that in um, Exodus chapter 6, verse 31, uh, it resembled a grain, and of course, the corn is a grain. So that is where it is used by metonymy, the literary device called metonymy, uh, and used in that sense. Also in Psalm 105, verse 40, it's called bread from heaven. Uh, uh, so the different words that are used uh, uh, by, by metonymy, using a, uh, a word that's associated with something uh, to get that truth across uh, in a more... Uh, poetic way so that you get uh, most of these things are done for effect basically so it's the same thing it means the same thing corn from heaven is the same thing as manner it's just that it's now used uh, poetically as a metonymy to, to speak of the same the same manner that was given thank you very much to the individual from St. Kitts who sent in those questions Pastor here's a WhatsApp question from Anguilla that has just come in good evening Pastor is interracial marriage anti-biblical uh, I I know that there, there was a big issue of that matter many years ago, and um, I remember when I was in Barbados many years ago. Uh, the mission board that the missionaries that came to the islands um, were having a problem with uh, the interracial issue. I remember that the gentlemen in our churches called down the officials from the school and had a thorough discussion on this matter. And I remember that they went down to the situation uh, the, the, Moses, and Moses married an Ethiopian. And uh, the person was pointing out, you know, that it created problems, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the issue here is that 
and then they used the, the, I remember at the time <coughs> they used the situation that when the Israelites went into Canaan they were told not to intermarry with the people and the Canaanites etc but again the reason God gave that reason uh, gave that rationale for not mar- it had nothing to do with skin color or pigmentation it had to do with religious faith he said if you, you do that you will become idolaters you'll get involved in the same kind of immorality so it's more for religious purposes than it was for the matter of uh, pigmentation there's no biblical basis anywhere in the Bible against interracial marriage. Um, uh, you can't find it there in, in, in the scriptures. So, But again, a lot of this came about <clears throat> in the south of America, where there was racial tension between blacks and, and, and whites, etc., etc., that went back to the days of slavery. And a lot of the uh, churches that came out of the South held to that position. Unfortunately, they brought that with them in certain when they went overseas to carry missionary work. But it's not biblical grounds against um, interracial marriage. What is the only condition for marriage is that you marry in the Lord. The person should be a believer as a Christian. However, let me say this. I must balance that by saying that there could be problems with uh, depending on where you live uh, with racial marriage. There could be problems even if you're an Antigua and you married a St. Lucian, or you married a Barbadian, or you married a Trinidadian. Uh, sometimes it's not racial, it's cultural. There, 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 there's such things that you do differently. Even eating, by the way, uh, it's, uh, what you eat is different. So, so there's no biblical grounds against it. But you need to still weigh the matter, whether it be um, whatever race you're going to marry into. Um, you know, the other thing I think is important when it comes to marriage is the family. You don't just marry a person; you marry into a family. And um, I would think you would take that into consideration. If the, the girl's family is against my, me marrying her or whatever it is, I personally wouldn't want to get in that marriage because I want my my children, I want my their grandparents to, to love my kids, etc., etc. But biblically, there is no um, biblical grounds against interracial marriage. Uh, I think it's a matter of choice between persons, and I think that matters need to be weighed carefully when you make those kind of decisions. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying race is not the problem. You need to be wise about cultural differences. Cultural differences are significant. Social differences are significant. Which you uh, could even have those cultural differences within the same race. Yeah. Look, I know of a, I can just say this, uh, for example, I, I know of a, a, a black Antiguan who's married to a white American. And um, in my conversations with them, when he walks down the road holding her hand, he said people are just gazing at me. It, it's a... Uh, uh, you know, it's like, so what? He used to think, by the way, that it was uh, his car. It was a, not a, a new car. It was kind of an old car. So he figured that it was the old car people would. But uh, he began to realize that people make a major difference, even in Antigua, in regards to this matter. Uh, she herself has suffered from uh, racial statements and things people say and the way she's treated because she's white, he's black. So it's not, it's a, so it's not an American problem. It is also a Caribbean problem, right? Uh, so, but it's something to be weighed. But there's no biblical grounds whatsoever to say that uh, that, that one should not marry interracially. Thank you very much for that question from Ian Guilla. Pastor, here's a WhatsApp question from Antigua, and this uh, ties back to our conversation from uh, last week and picks back up with demonology. 
Pastor, can you please repeat what you said about giants in Genesis chapter 4 and verse number 6? Yeah, I, uh, the, the word giant there uh, is the word Nephilim, okay, in the Hebrew language. In the, in the Septuagint, the word is, that's translated there, Nephilim, is the word Titan. Now, the Titans in the Greek language were the people who were half God. Uh, you heard the, the, you know, the Titans were uh, uh, supposed to be the byproduct of the gods and human beings, basically. Uh, and that's the term that was used by the Greek Septuagint. When it was being translated um, from the Septuagint, the English people trans- put the word giant there. Uh, and that's where we get the confusion but it really has to do with Nephilims, and these are the Titans. This will be the uh, Greek mythology about half God and half man. That's where all that Greek mythology came from. You know, there, there's some truth behind a lot of mythology. People, there was some core truth that is there that was now distorted, and that's exactly why I believe that this this con- Greek concept about the Titans came from. Um, so there was original distruth about the fact that these fallen angels had intermarried with these uh, human uh, women and produced these Nephilims or these uh, what, what uh, these Titans basically. And if you read Second uh, Peter and um, and uh, Jude, you see that the reference is made to this group. Specifically, Peter talks about it happened during the time of the flood. And that's why the flood came, by the way. It's not just that mankind was evil, but mankind became evil because these angelic beings were so corrupt. Uh, it led to the perversion of mankind. And, of course, I pointed out in Genesis chapter 15, the Messiah is going to come through uh, a woman. And what better way to destroy the line of the Messiah by corrupting the human race? And that's why God destroyed the human race and started over with, with uh, Noah and his, and his sons and, and their wives. And then Jude points out very clearly how this came about, that they went after strange flesh like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah went after strange flesh in the fact that men went after men. It was homosexuality. Homosexuality is, is, is abnormal. It is evil. It is wicked. It's an abomination. It is unnatural. Uh, and up until the 1970s, it was labeled as a psychological disorder. And remember, that was only changed not because there was any scientific reason for changing it. It's because of the activism of the homosexual movement that threatened violence to the psychologists that it was actually changed. But um, it's an abomination. Just like they went after strange flesh, these fallen went after strange flesh. They went after human beings. And that's why God said they left their first estate. And God has put them and reserved them in darkness until the end. They are confined permanently until the final judgment. And it's because of uh, what they did, the perversion that was caused. Pastor, last week you were talking about demons, demonology, specifically what some of their activities are. And you mentioned that demons promote false doctrine. Can you give us some biblical evidence for that statement? Well, if you look at uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3, you can read that for me, please. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, in verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and 
know the truth. In addition to that, there are other passages, but that, that's a classic example where he talks about men will give heed to seducing spirits, evil spirits that will deceive uh, religious leaders. And it says as a result of that deception, they come up with what is called doctrines of demons, demonic doctrines, false doctrines that are introduced into the church. Um, so clearly Paul talks about that. It will happen in the latter days. And when you add to that passage, First John chapter 4, verse 3, uh, if you would like to read that for just a moment. As I'm turning there, it, when he talks about these f- doctrines about um, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, is it possible or am I going too far to say, okay, this is the Catholic Church pushing this, this is this particular cult pushing this doctrine, or he's just talking general and we need to leave it at no, that? No, but clearly what he's talking about there is that the, the doctrine of the end time is going to be a works salvation type of doctrine. For example, you see all the emphasis on vegetarianism? Mm -hmm. Uh, That itself is uh, is part of that whole system. In other words, the emphasis now is on, for example, not marrying, being celibate. Uh, it mentioned foods, uh, you did this, it, being a vegetarian, as though this has anything to do with salvation. So it's like a work salvation. So it has to do with you. you it's not, they're not emphasizing faith and faith alone, redemption alone or justification alone. They're adding to the gospel okay. of salvation by saying this plus this. So it's a works salvation that's being emphasized, whether that be the form of being a vegetarian, whether it be the form of being celibate. It's an adding to the biblical doctrine of justification by faith. That is demonic doctrine. All right. First John chapter 4, four verse 3. Verse 3 says, And every spirit that confesseth that not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and is that spirit of the Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Again, it's not spirits confessing. Of course, it means uh, it doesn't mean that the spirit is not gonna, a spirit is not going to come and speak to you. This is spirit who influences people to speak this way, right? And the other part about this uh, false doctrine is not only that it's, it's a doctrine of uh, salvation by works, but it's a doctrine that undermines the the uh, the nature and the person of Christ. Uh, John talks about two things. Uh, number one, they deny the fact that Christ has come in the flesh. They deny his humanity. And, uh, of course, John is combating what is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that uh, an eon, which is a spin-off from God, called Christ, came upon the man Jesus at his baptism. And just before Christ died, this neon Christ left him so that Christ dearly did not die. Jesus died, but he's not the Christ. Uh, that's the, the false doctrine that was there. And so you find an attack upon his humanity that is not... In other words, Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. That's what John says. He's, he's one person. He's not two persons. One didn't come upon him and leave him. He's Christ Jesus. He's one person. It's talking about his nature. is a double nature. He is man and he's God at the same time. Okay, so there's an attack there on his humanity. And then Peter uh, will talk later about they will come who will deny uh, the Lord that bought them uh, in the book of Peter, and that speaks of the attack upon his deity, uh, the fact that he is Lord, the denial of the Lord. So you're going to have the Second Peter two one. By the way, if you look at that one, Second Peter two chapter two one. verse one. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. 
again, he's talking about the end times, he's talking about what's going to happen, and these are people who come in as false prophets. But notice they're denying the very Lord that bought them. They're now denying his deity, his, the fact that he's Lord. See, they don't mind saying he's a man, but he's not God. So you're going to have an attack both on his humanity, and you have an attack both on his deity. False doctrines always attack the person of Christ. You come to the Jehovah's Witness for just an example. They say that Christ is the first creature of God. He's not God in the flesh. That is heresy. That is a false doctrine. And, uh, of course, that started in, 19, in the 1980s, right? Um, you go to any of uh, the—you take, uh, you even take the, the Mormon movement, uh, and you find that their, their presentation of Christ is completely a distortion. Uh, God the Father had sex with Mary and produced Jesus. That's the teaching, right? That's heresy, total heresy. But again, you can expect that this demonic um, doctrine in the end time will center for, on the deity of Christ, uh, both his humanity and his uh, deity, and it will also center on this matter of works, uh, salvation. That And the other thing that we discover very later, look at Second Peter chapter 2, verse 15, dealing with these same false teachers. And verse says, Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. The end time false religion is mercenary. That's where the prosperity gospel comes in. It's about money. It's about riches. It's about getting wealthy. So, uh, and this is where the Bible warns that, uh, you know, Balaam sold out his, um, his prophethood for gain. And this is what is emphasizing that in the end time, the people come on the scene and their whole purpose is money. You know, I, I, I just saw um, <clears throat> something on the internet <clears throat> about the, excuse me, the richest American, richest American pastors. And I just Googled it. I mean, just, I, just, I, I was stunned. I was totally stunned of how wealthy these people are. Hmm. I mean, $50 million, $20 million, $30 million. Uh, I was stunned how this, and this guy got two, three Rolls Royce. This guy got, and I'm saying to myself, how could this be? But that's what the Bible talks about in the end time, mercenary men who see the ministry purely as an enterprise, a profit enterprise, a business. And they see how they can milk people out of their money. And that's exactly what Bible talks about. So the end time prophecy, part of the demonic um, end time prophecy and the end time doctrine, uh, it will be these angelic, uh, fallen angelic beings called demons, uh, misleading these people, misleading these people, creating greed. And of course, greed appeals to greed because the average person is avaricious. He's covetous. He wants more. So when you've got a, a pastor telling you that if you give, you're going to get more, <laughs> the covetous spirit is fed. That's what Paul talks about uh, in the end time, having men with gathered them, teachers having itching ears. Uh, that is, the pastor will tell them what they want to hear, tickle their ears. They're not concerned about truth any longer. And that is what we currently are experiencing on almost on a global scale. Pastor, I overheard a conversation this last week where an individual was saying they'd been in a church here in Antigua where the pastor was uh, standing up front said, oh, God just told me that you need to come throw money at me. And he went and he stood on a sheet that was down on the floor and held his hands up and people came and threw money and there was a limit. They had to throw things over $20 bills at him. Yeah. And then uh, everyone went and sat down and he said, oh, 
that wasn't enough. You need to come do it again. And people came and did it again. Is that biblical? Is there any biblical basis for that? That is pure stupidity. I don't know how people don't have any discernment. Uh, A man did that to me the last time I would be in his church. Right? There's no biblical base for that, whatever. The Lord didn't tell him anything. I can guarantee you the Lord didn't tell him anything, okay? You don't give money to the pastor. You give money to the ministry of the church. And uh, he's just trying to milk you. Uh, you. There's no precedent for that anywhere in the scriptures. You don't find that anywhere in, in church history. But that is characteristic of the time in which we live. People are no longer lose, using the Bible as a guide uh, to try to hold pastors responsible they're just gullible and accepting anything the person said because he wears a collar, he claims to be the man of God. But the pastor is not above the Scripture. The Scripture is superior to the pastor. You know, the Bereans, when Paul went preaching to them and Paul was preaching, they took the Bible and compared what Paul was saying to see if it aligned with Scripture. If it did not align in Scripture and it was not so, they would, would, would have rejected and rightfully so. So I don't know how people... Uh, who are supposed to be intelligent and smart have no discernment whatsoever to see when a pastor is abusing his power. But I, I don't. If you didn't tell me that, I wouldn't think that is possible, mm. right? But it shows me that people are gullible and they have no discernment and they're not governed by scripture. They're governed by personalities. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.35. If you have a question, you can call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and available. The number to call is 268-462-7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268 268- Seven eight two one four five four. Pastor, we'll get back to demonology, but a question that just came in, which I think is very practical. Uh, question from Antigua: Should a pastor encourage people in their church or their congregation to vote in a political election? Well, look, I think within a democracy, I think that every person should use the freedom and the liberty that they have and uh, make a, a choice. Um, I don't think a pastor should tell people who to vote for, but I think he should encourage the congregation to vote uh, for any elections. I think that is proper. You know, look, we have one means of changing or curtailing a situation we don't like, and that's our vote. If a government uh, in the Caribbean, for example, was pushing abortion or pushing same-sex marriage or pushing homosexuality, uh, I couldn't vote for that government. I'll be very honest with you, I could not vote for him a good conscience because that is clearly against biblical principle. And I know where that leads, by the way. The moment you legalize abortion, uh, legalize homosexuality and uh, you legalize same-sex marriage, I'm telling you this, it's going to filter down to the children because now you have to normalize this lifestyle and you have to start teaching it from early. So if you want your child to be taught that a man is a woman and the woman is a man, and you want to feminize your men and masculinize your women, you've got to ask yourself, is that what you want? See, And, and by the way, read the book of Genesis chapter 19. Homosexuality doesn't stay where it is. It becomes very, very aggressive and very, very militant. And you'll read in the book of Genesis chapter 19 that when they went to the house, from the oldest to the youngest, so you're going to create a new breed of young homosexual, homosexuals. This is where it's all headed. 
until the whole city of, of Sodom were just full of homosexuals. Is that what you want? And this is what we want in the Caribbean? My, my, I don't want that for my family. I don't want that for my kids or my grandkids. So I will take a stand against any government that in any way is going to suggest and legalize same-sex marriage. As you know, in Barbados, it's a big issue. As I understand they're going to do a, a census on this matter. Referendum. A referendum, sorry, on this matter. Uh, I think the Barbadian public uh, is going to send a very clear message to me and Motley that they don't support this kind of uh, evil, this kind of corruption, this kind of abomination. Um, and I think most Caribbean people would be against homosexuality and against same-sex marriage. Um, the Africans, for example, uh, when um, <laughs> I think that that's probably the last hope outside the Caribbean because all the Western European countries are now embraced this thing. America, England has embraced it. America is going to embrace it. Canada is worse than America. And the, the Africans told Obama, we will eat grass rather than institute this social system you want to impose upon us. Uh, they can do that because they have resources that are not dependent. We in the Caribbean, third world countries, no resources other than human resources and, and perhaps your land, but we don't have any gold, we don't have any silver, we don't have any bauxite uh, except Jamaica and, and uh, probably Guyana. We don't have any, you know. Very, so the social pre- the pressure, economic pressure we brought to bear upon these countries to uh, to, to push their uh, the, these um First world social agenda, which has to do with normalizing homosexuality and, and gay marriage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm worried about it, but I hope that the Caribbean people uh, will take a very, very stern stand because we don't want to become uh, a place like Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's where we're headed ultimately once these things are legalized. I heard one of our broadcasters just today walking through the progression of when you accept homosexuality. And then not only do you have to accept it, then you have to embrace it. And then, like you said, you re-indoctrinate. And then suddenly it becomes more and more aggressive to the point where you have to close down your business if you don't have on your board of directors individuals who are of this uh, sexual persuasion, as they would call it. I think that is very, very uh, well said, uh, Nathan, because my main concern is how it affects Christians. I'm a bit, suppose I'm a businessman. I run a hotel. I, I, have a, I have a few apartments. I could not, in good conscience, knowingly rent an, uh, uh, an apartment to, to a, a, a homosexual couple. I can't do it. It's against biblical teaching. It's against my conscience. Now, what happens now? I am seen as though I'm discriminating. I'm, I'm against equality, and therefore I might be fined. I might be forced to uh, to a case where I have to uh, pay some reimbursement to them, whatever it is. Uh, the sanction of the law may come upon me. Uh, you know, all of this can happen. And this this is where the, the, the fear is. Uh, I'm a baker. Anybody could come in there and buy a cake for me and uh, buy whatever it is. But you come and tell me, look, I'm going to marry this guy, or I'm going a woman saying I'm going to marry this guy. And I like you to bake my cake. And I said, no, I can't do it. I can't sanction something that's an abomination to God. Those are the kind of issues that we have to face in the future. America is facing them. Trump came in and he did a lot to reverse that because. Uh, frankly, I thought that American people should have raised up a long time. I think this church has been sleeping too long. I think they should be willing to pay the consequences, even if they got to go to jail. I've said again and again, there are not enough jails in America to hold the Christians if they would take a stand on these issues. But uh, for some reason, uh, they're not taking a stand, and they're losing their freedom and their rights. 
and the time will come perhaps when they will say we've had enough and then we'll have like in Jamaica 30,000 people on the street walking against the suggestion of the uh, legitimizing of homosexuality. Pastor, we have Nathan from Nevis calling. Thank you for calling. Nathan, go ahead with your question quickly, please. Yes. I would like the pastor to explain Luke chapter 12 and verse 36. 12 and 36. Okay. Let me read that for you real quick. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Well, I think it's um, asking the same thing that the Bible tells us again and again, that we should watch and be ready. Uh, that's what he's saying. In other words, uh, the believer should be the one that is expecting our Lord to return. Uh, he's coming, the Bible says, as a thief in the night, and we should not be caught unawares. And you'll find repeatedly, whether it be our Lord or Paul in his writings, are always telling the believer to be alert, to be vigilant, uh, that the Lord can return at any moment. His return is imminent, and therefore we should have this expectant spirit. And, and, and you know what John tells us in First John chapter 3? Every man that hath this hope purifieth himself. So it has a practical effect on a believer when he's living consciously day by day. The Lord may return today. The Lord may come today. That kind of expectancy puts you on your P's and Q's and encourages you to live a good, solid, moral, spiritual life where you're constantly looking for the Master to come and you don't want to be caught when He comes that you're doing something that is inappropriate, something that's wrong on biblical or on scriptural. You want to be ready for Him when He returns. So it's an incentive for the believer and that's what the, the, the rapture is about the eminent return of Christ has always been about to keep the believer alert to gird up the loins of his mind to be always uh, be conscious that it may be today now if I know it may be today I'm not going to live a life that is contrary to what God requires of me. I'm going to pull my line in, my life in line with what the Bible wants me to be. So that expectancy keeps me on my P's and Q's and helps me to live a godly, uh, God-conscious life and uh, avoiding the flesh and carnality. Yes, um, what really caught my attention is that he says, when he shall return from the wedding. What wedding is he referring to, making reference to? What's that? When he shall return from the wedding. Return from the wedding? Yes, what wedding is he referring to? Let me read the verse again. Uh, and ye yourselves, like unto men that wait for the Lord, when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. And if you're looking in your Bible, that's Luke chapter 12, verse 36. Verse 36. Look, I can't answer that part of it right now because I am really truth of fact. Uh, that part of it I haven't paid attention to. Could I respond to that next week? Yeah. Okay, let me do that because I don't want to give you an answer. Then I got to retract on this matter. I like to look at it myself more carefully. Thank you for giving me the chance to do that. Okay, appreciate that. Right. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for the call, Nathan. And I highlighted it here, and we'll start out next week's episode, Lord willing, with that question. Pastor, a WhatsApp question that just came in from Sweets Village, Antigua. Good night. Is Adam and are Adam and Eve the only people that God created on Earth? Because there are many different types of people, different colors, and all. Well, if you believe the Bible, all of us came from one, uh, two people. As a matter of fact. 
if you read the book of Romans, it is absolutely important that you believe that because Adam was the federal head of humanity and Jesus Christ is the second federal head. There's a linkage between Adam's creation and Christ's redemption. And uh, if you don't understand the federal headship, you have a problem understanding the biblical doctrine of salvation. Uh, all the races were in Adam. And uh, clearly, God didn't have to create black people and white people and, and uh, Asian people. Uh, he could have given, uh, in, the, in the original couple, the, the genetic um, ability that as man grew and man developed and men moved to different locations, that whatever genetic structure was there uh, created the different type of races. But we all came from one stock. Uh, that is the biblical teaching. And if you accept the Bible, that is the only biblical teaching. You would have to go outside the Bible. And, and let me just say this. I'm a biblicist. I believe the Bible is God's Word. Uh, I, I believe there's several reasons why it's God's Word. I can, we can talk about it another time. But we don't go outside the Bible to explain races. The Bible makes it quite clear that uh, it was out of um, Noah's three sons that you got the races. You had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You read the, the Old Testament, you see very clear. It makes it very clear that Japheth went to the north. That's where the Europeans come from. And it mentioned the different locations. Um, Seth, uh, sorry, um, Shem, Ham, Shem, the Shemites, they are the ones that went to the east. And that's where you get the Shemites, etc., etc. And then the Hamites are the ones that went to the south, which was the, the, the Africans. So you've got the three, from the three sons of Noah is where you get the three different types of substantial races. You've got the white, you've got the black, and you what, what people call the occidental or the, the yellow, basically. Those are the three major distinct races in the world, and they all stem from uh, um, Noah's three sons. And um, so that's the biblical teaching. If you don't accept that, um, it means that you are willing to surrender the Bible and you go against the Scriptures. And there's no other explanation anywhere uh, in any other writings, in any other uh, um, historical writings, uh, whether it be Babylonian or Mesopotamian or African, that uh, all of them, by the way, uh, all of these traditions all say that we all came from one, one, one family. Uh, so it's uh, um, uh, certainly something that humankind knew originally, and that's why you find... And by the way, in all the cultures, you find creation, you find Noah's Ark, you find the Flood in all the major cultures. So clearly there's a core belief. The only problem is when you look at these other um, traditions, there are huge exaggerations. Uh, they don't follow the reserved um, account that's given in the Bible that's very careful and very thoughtful and give you explanation. There always has some exaggeration. Could I say something else? In all the cultures also, like you have the time before the flood, you had all these people with ages to live 100 years and 900 years. Uh, you'll find also in all of the cultures there is longevity in as well that is mentioned in the cultures, but they're exaggerations. They live much longer than the people in the Bible as far as the accounts are going. Are go. So you, you have original core truth that was eventually distorted as man dispensed and it became mythologies, etc., etc., uh, depending on the culture in which uh, it was spread. Pastor, how would you uh, answer the question, though, about when science contradicts uh, the teaching you hold to in the Bible? Simple. Science is wrong. And, science, and by the way, no true science has ever contradicted the Bible. It is what you call pseudoscience. 
or what you call scientism. It's like the evolutionary theory, the biggest hoax. Up to now, I can't figure out how intelligent people ever embrace evolution. It's the most stupid uh, doctrine or teaching that you could ever discover. It makes absolutely no sense. But remember that it came about in the time when man was in his infantile state of uh, knowledge in terms of science. The average guy in secondary school knew more, knows more science than Darwin did at the time. And the, 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 the scriptures have always been right. So uh, when it seems as though there's a contradiction, and that's what I would say, seem to be a contradiction, uh, uh, but you'll never find true science ever conflicting with scriptures. Um, so, and by the way, the Bible is far in advance of scientific theory. Let me just use some illustrations. You take the water cycle that was only discovered in modern times. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. The wind comes up the mountain, it goes up, it precipitates, it comes back, it goes back into the river. That's the water cycle. The wind cycle is also mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes. It goes towards the east, then to the west, and then back again. And then the Bible talks about God sitting on the corn, on the circle of the earth. That is, the, the earth is not flat, it is circular. <laughs> and then uh, in the book of Job, it talks about God's, uh, the, earth, the, the earth hanging on nothing. That is space gravity, basically. So, I mean, and there are many other... Uh, for example, the, it talks about the treasure in the, in the snow. Every snowflake is different. Uh, look, it's just that we don't have time, but we could probably do a, th- a thing on that to see where in, in the scriptures, uh, scientific theories that were only discovered in modern times were actually hinted at in the Bible. Uh, uh, but by the way, also the idea of the, the tilting of, the, of the, uh, the equator, that you can have light, day and night one time remember the Lord said that some would be what sleeping and some would be awake how can you have that it's talking about the tilting of the of the of the um, the earth so there's a lot of other scientific things that the Bible is way ahead uh, before scientists discovered it take blood for example the importance of blood when was that discovered only in modern times but the Bible says that the life was in the blood etc and uh, recently, we talk about washing hands, washing hands, washing hands. Going to the going to the book of Leviticus, when you went to the bathroom and you came out, you had to wash your hand before you, eat, you had to wash your hand. Think about that for just a moment. How far in advance scriptures were in regard to modern scientific theory and what people are supposed to be practicing. Pastor, we have a number of questions that have come in here. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. What does the Bible say about women preaching? We've discussed that on another occasion. I hope Brother Nathan could give you the information. But women are not given and not called to be preachers. The Bible is very explicitly clear on this matter. Read the book of, of, of uh, um, Timothy. Uh, Paul says a woman must not be have authority, and she must not uh, rule over a man, and he gives two reasons for it. Number one, Adam was created first. It was not an accident Adam was created first. It was part of the hierarchy of order. And Paul made that quite clear that Adam is supposed to be the leader because that's the way God designed. And secondly, because she was deceived. She is susceptible to deception. And that uh, those are the two reasons given why she should not be in the pastoral ministry. Besides that, when you look at the biblical qualifications for a pastor, she must be the husband of one wife. How is she going to be the husband of one wife? We're going to have lesbianism now in the church? All right. So clearly you can't, there's no basis whatsoever for pushing these women to be preachers. And I don't understand, and I think it's a, it's a sellout basically to the cultural um, norms of our times 
in order to ingratiate herself in the favor with the modern man and the sexist movement and the, the feminist movement, but there's no biblical grounds whatsoever for a woman being a pastor. You cannot find in, in, uh, in, in, in uh, church history women being pastors either. That's a modern phenomenon. If you're interested in uh, more information on that, we spent a whole hour discussing it uh, back in February of 2018. If you go to our website, radiolighthouse.org, scroll down to the second large picture that you see. It'll be a picture of a microphone, and right in the middle of the screen, you'll see a circle that says podcast. Click on that, and you can click on uh, That's Truth Podcast. Look for episode number six. Episode number six, it's entitled Roles of Men and Women in Church Leadership. Another way you can get to that is just go to Google, type in That's Truth Podcast, and you can choose your preferred provider, and then look for episode number six. Pastor, we have just a couple of few minutes left in the program. A WhatsApp question from St. Eustatius. Please enlighten me on these verses, Matthew chapter 15, verses 24 to 27, and I'll read these to set the context. Matthew 24, Matthew 15, 24 to 27. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the table of their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. One of the passages that is... um seem very offensive in modern times because the expression that is used there uh, is uh, is not good to give the children's meat to the dogs. People are so sensitive today if you say anything that seems to be abrasive uh, uh, or, or socially not accepted, people find that offensive. But again, you've got to look at it in the New Testament days. First of all, when Christ said, I was not sent but to the lost tribe of Israel, that's biblically true. The Messiah was coming to Israel and to introduce the kingdom to Israel. That's a promise that was given to Israel. But uh, the the coming to uh, save Israel was the means of the Gentiles being converted. Israel was supposed, even in the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to be a centripetal force. And what I mean by that is a force that would draw other nations and other peoples and cultures to God, the true and the living God. By their life, by their example, by their laws, by their, the way they live, it was supposed to be to, to attract people to the true God of the Bible. That has always been the purpose for Israel. Israel was not an end in itself. It was a means to a greater end where all the Gentiles would be embraced into the kingdom. And when our Lord is dealing with this woman here, he's trying to pull uh, her faith out of her. Okay, And he's just saying, look, you know, I was sent to the lost tribe of Israel because I'm Israel's Messiah. But don't forget that uh, if you read the Old Testament as well, that Israel, God becomes the Messiah of Israel, that Israel becomes the means of reaching the Gentile nations. They were the instruments of bringing people to faith. So he's just reciting and reminding uh, this uh, Gentile lady from Canaan that um, he was sent to the lost tribe of Israel. And then... Um, 
he went on to say to her, uh, she said, well, give me, you know, my son needs healing, etc. And our Lord used the illustration, it's not good to give the, ch- the, the, the children's bread to dogs. Again, the word the, the word dog is used of a, um, of Gentiles is used of anything that is uh, an, uh, an apostate, etc. You find that Paul talks about this as well. That outside are dogs, etc. Paul talks in Philippians chapter three. So he's saying to the this particular lady that is not right to give the the Jewish um, blessings to the Gentiles. But notice the the power of her faith and the wit of her faith. She says, uh, argues with him. Uh, She argues herself into his favor, as it were. It doesn't mean that, remember that Christ knows what he's going to do before he even does it. He knows that he has to pull this woman's faith out of her. And that's what he does. Like he does with Nicodemus. And he he knows exactly what's going to happen. So she, in a wit, uh, bowled him over by saying, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. And our Lord marvels that she doesn't take the insult that would seem to be an insult that would turn her off. Uh, she's actually motivated to argue with this man because she recognized that he's the Messiah, he's the only one that can help her. So rather than be slighted because she found something offensive in his words, it propels her more to carry on this conversation and to argue with him that she needs help and she's not going to give up until this help is... She's persistent, she's importunate. And our Lord rewards that. I'll pick it up next time uh, and deal with it more extensively. Pastor... If I'm listening and I want to know what it means to be a Christian or how I can become a Christian in 30 seconds. Put your faith in Christ, believe on Him, repent of your sins, and accept Christ as your Savior. Can I become a Christian without repenting? No, you cannot become a believer without repentance. Repentance is the preamble to true conversion. You repent of your sins and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The two go together. It's like two sides of one coin. You can't have the coin without the two sides. And you can't have salvation without repentance and faith. Thank you for joining us for tonight's episode. Be sure you tune in next week. Encourage others to tune in to That's Truth next Tuesday. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.